throw in my uh, encouragement as well to uh, fill out those officer nomination forms. I think there are some in the foyer. You may have to look around, uh, but they'll be there for the next couple of weeks. You can mail them in, bring them in, or drop them off this morning but, uh, or next week. But please, please do prayerfully nominate uh, some candidates for the leadership in our church. We are in First Peter. I've been preaching through the book of First Peter. Um, we have been unpacking Peter's message to Christ's church, unpacking um, God's message to his church through Peter, and walking through systematically that which he is trying to tell us. We're in First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. If you don't have a Bible, there's one there in the pew. You can pull it out, and uh, we're in First Peter toward the end. Chapter 1, hear then God's word. And therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have gathered again this morning into your presence. You tell us that when two or three or three hundred are gathered, there you are with us. Father, we would have our ears open, our hearts soft. We would hear your voice. Father, this is your word. and We ask that you would speak it into our lives with power in such a way that it changes who we are, that we would go from here as more uh, and more captured for you and for your purposes. We ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. You've been watching the news the last few days, well, have you been watching the news the last couple hundred years? Things are not the way they're supposed to be. We were looking last week or two weeks ago and in, uh, in talking about that in regards to suffering. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. And the suffering that you and I experience, whether it's because of our faith or simply because we are part of the human race, is part of our experience. But the truth is, when we bring it all on home, we are not the way we're supposed to be. And in some respects, we're part of the problem of this world. That we're not the way we're supposed to be. We're supposed to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. We're to love our God passionately and we're to live lives before Him that are pleasing to Him and honoring Him. We're to live to Him, to walk humbly with our God and to do justice and to do what is right. To live pure, to live clean because our God is that way. And He calls us to be like Him and to walk with Him and to honor Him. We're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves. Right? Jesus says the two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Think of his interests as much as you think of your own interests. Put their interests first. Lay down your lives in, in service. But our lives fall short of the glory of God. Our lives fall short of God's design and short of his purpose, short of his desire for you and I as his people. And his desire and his purpose is holiness. As we look at this text, he, he uh, just these three verses brings together, you know, really what is the main business of our lives? What is the main thing that you and I are supposed to be about? 
And God says, it's because of who I am that you're supposed to be who you're supposed to be. In fact, I made you in my image and I've made you to be a certain way. And the business of our lives then is to be holy because he is holy. Now this section starts off by talking about, therefore preparing your minds. He starts talking about our minds. Preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, setting your hope, that is in your heart and in your mind, fully on the grace that is to be revealed. Preparing your mind for action. That's an interesting phrase. and You might even think, what does that even mean? And it's actually more interesting as you go underneath it into the, it's actually the translation of a Greek idiom. And it actually literally says, gird up the loins of your mind. Which is a weird phrase for for us, Americans in the 21st century. Uh, Because anytime you use loins in a sentence, you're always wondering where this is going. But he says, gird up the loins of your mind. It speaks to the way that they dressed in, well, and they still dress in the Middle East. If you see some of the leaders of Saudi Arabia, and, you know, and they're in their formal wear, you know, you see them, they're often in long flowing robes that go down to their feet. Um, and these robes, while it is their formal wear, their normal wear, uh, is a little bit restrictive. It's not, you know, you don't see them playing tennis in those robes or, you know, running a marathon, you know, or even their military dresses differently. But in their, their normal everyday or their leisure wear or their formal wear, there are these garbs. And so if you needed to prepare for action, if something was going to go on, I you know the house down the street's on fire and I need to get there, you would gird up your loins. You would take your robe and you would hike it up and you would pull it through and you would tuck it into your belt. And it would be, you know, kind of this, I don't know, big diaper thing that goes on, you know. But you would tuck it in, you know, to, get it, to, to free up your legs so that you can run. That's why most runners are wearing shorts or something, you know. They gird up, but they gird up their loins with their robe so that they are prepared for what's next. You know, that they're prepared for action. They're not, they're not in a meeting and they're not lounging in the living room. They're, they're preparing for action. And so Peter, as he comes to this section of the letter, is telling them, prepare your minds for action, like, you know, Pull yourself together. Gird up the loins. Hike it up. Tuck it in. Be ready to be active. It's not time for leisure. It's not time for laying around. You know, and then he says, not only to do this, prepare your minds in this way, but be sober-minded. Which literally, you know what that means. It means to have your wits about you, right? Not to be inebriated. Um, you know, to have your wits about you. But in metaphorically, it's the same way. When he says, it's be sober-minded, there's a metaphorical sense of being, of being, have your wits about you, to be self-controlled, to be disciplined, to be thoughtful, to be aware, to be on track. And what Peter is saying is that living out this great salvation that we've been talking about for the last number of weeks Living out this great salvation requires some serious effort. We're going to have to fix our minds. We're going to have to, get, we're going to, have to do some readiness. We're going to have to think about it. It requires effort. It requires all of our hearts and all of our souls and all of our mind and all of our strength. And he says, so you need to prepare. And you need to be sober-minded and you need to be serious and you need to get down to business. There's no room for games with God. You know, when we look at this that we've been talking about, that Peter's been laying out in terms of who God is and what he has done, he says there's no room for games here. There's no room for laziness here. We cannot live carelessly before the God who has done these things. And so he says, set your hope fully. Right? Set it fully. You know, this whole girding up and being serious. You know, so if you've been lounging around the living room and I come bursting in the door, you know, and I say, get up, let's go, get a move on. 
That's what Peter's doing at this point in the letter. He's bursting the door and he said, get up. You know, let's go. Get a move on. Time for laying on the couch is done. You know, if you've been a little scatterbrained, it'd be like he took you by the collar and he just said, you know, pull yourself together, man. Get your wits about you. Focus. Think straight. Get moving. And he says, set your hope. That is, as you're doing, you know, this whole getting our mind right is setting our hope fully on the grace to be given us when Christ is revealed and Christ comes again. We live for that future grace. We live for that future moment. We live with the knowledge that though things seem like they will go on like this forever, they won't. And either I will pass away into that presence or he will come again and I will stand in that presence. But he says someday that's going to happen when Jesus is revealed and grace for those in faith will come. And he says Jesus is basically saying Jesus is coming again and God's people should live like it. We should live like it matters. Like we will stand in his presence. And Peter calls his church, Christ's church, to faith and to orient our lives to live for that day when we will stand before him. Scripture does this again and again and again. Jesus does it. It's here in your bulletin if you found the outline under the first point. Preparing your minds. Jesus says it this way in Luke chapter 12. He says, stay dressed for action. By the way, that phrase, stay dressed for action, is the same phrase that's here in Peter. Gird up your loins. Get ready. Right? Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men and women who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and when he knocks. In other words, that we are ready for his return. Right? He said, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Prepare for action and live like he's coming back. And so God calls his people to this wakefulness, to this seriousness, in a sense, and this preparedness when it comes to spiritual things and the way that we live. But he starts with this, this little section here with a therefore, and we really are in a transition. This section is a transition from what he's been saying. Anytime you read the word therefore, you should ask, what is the therefore there for? You know, it refers back. It points backwards. It's a concluding word, right? Something else has been said, and therefore is the conclusion and what comes out of it, the result. And so let me just tell you a couple things about this therefore. Let me give you two implications that I think are crucial to your Christian life in this word therefore right here in this text. You know, and the first one is simply this, that Peter has been describing what theologians call the indicatives of grace. Right? Let me give you this a small language lesson if you just bear with me for two minutes. You know, if you, if you, if you remember your grammar from grade school, assuming that they taught you your language and how it's put together and used, and that there are different moods and parts of speech, and of those parts in speech, there are indicatives, which are factual statements. You know, it's just telling you the way things are. And then there are imperatives. The imperative mood is the mood of command. Shut the door. I'm not telling you how things are. I'm telling you what to do. Right? It's an imperative. It's a command. And it's a, it's a voice in language. And we know it. You know, we put an exclamation mark. There are various ways we communicate. The voice is no longer. You can ask your kids, you know, to, you, know you guys want to do this or you want to do that. You know, it's more the indicative. It leaves more open. You're just stating the facts. You're giving them options, that kind of thing. But if you say, go to bed, and that's the last time I'm telling you, you know, this is the imperative. 
What Peter has been doing through the first half of this chapter, verses 1 through 13 or 12, that we've been studying over these last weeks, is, is going over what the theologians call the indicatives of grace. In other words, in verses 1 to 12, you'll notice as you read through there, there's not one command. There's not a single command. He doesn't tell us to do anything. He is telling us what God has done. And the Bible always starts here. It always starts with what God has done. And so Peter walks us through as he talks to us as God's chosen people who have been uh, foreknown and who have been sanctified and who have been called and brought to the obedience of Christ. He talks about praising God because he has caused us to be born again by his great mercy into a living hope and he, that, that's through the resurrection of what Jesus has done, what God has done. And he says, therefore, we have an inheritance. We've entered into this, this living hope, this inheritance is being kept for us that day when Jesus is revealed, the salvation that's ready to be revealed. And he says, and you are being guarded, and you are being kept for it. And even though you've got to go through the crucible of this life and things are not the way they're supposed to be, and so that hurts. It hurts around the world. It hurts in our sense of justice and rightness. It hurts in our bodies sometimes. It hurts in our relationships, and things aren't the way. And he says, even though you're going through this, God is refining you as you walk with him, as you know him, as you love him, right? Those experiences, as we, as we do not abandon him, and he, we know that he never leaves and forsakes us. It changes us to, to be shaped to be more like Jesus, which is where he is going. But anyway, as he goes through here, he is telling us what God has done and what God is doing and all of these indicatives of grace before he gives one command. And you arrive in verse 13 and you get your first command. And it's crucial to understand this, as I say, the therefore is there. What goes before the therefore? Therefore, be holy because I am holy. He gives the command. Therefore, you know, pursue holiness in all of your conduct. You know, abandoning your former ignorance. That's a therefore because of what God has done. Who God is. The great salvation that he has accomplished in his son Christ. And that good work that he has begun in you. And that he will carry on to completion until the day that he comes again. Because of who he is. And what he has done. Which leads to the second significance of the therefore. Which is simply this. That all of these indicatives of God's grace. All that God has done. Requires a response calls for response, right? The indicatives must come first and we must put them in their right place so that we, we put his commands, his call on our lives in the right place. It's because of what he has done that he calls us to this way of life. But all that he has done calls us to a way of life. It calls for response. We didn't... You know, it, it, lost my place all that God does requires response right in other words it's meant to bring a change of life which is what he's been describing throughout this whole thing and what he has done is brings us into the end you know you see it in the book of Ephesians if you've ever looked at it the first three it's six chapters it's kind of a case study in this whole thing there's three chapters where Paul describes what God has done and if you read those three chapters there's not one command in the first three chapters of Ephesians and then as you move into chapter 4 of Ephesians, and there's 4, 5, and there's 3 more chapters, he goes, therefore. And if you look at 4 to the end of 6, it's almost all commands. Live like this. Be like this. No longer lie. No longer steal. No longer, you know, speak the truth in love. Put on the full armor of God. Stand firm. Do these things. 
But it's always followed by the therefore. Change is required. James 1.22 under the second point there in your bulletin. James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Right? Be doers of the word and not hearers only. We must hear the word first. God speaks first. God acts first. God tells us. And we must be hearers. But he says, don't be hearers only. Because if we, if we listen and we know these things and we don't do anything, he says, we are deceiving ourselves. When we hold doctrines that don't hold us and change the way we live. The Bible calls that hypocrisy. Where we say one thing, but we live another thing. Where we hold these great truths to be you know, inalienable and biblical and all these things, and it doesn't change the way we think and the way we live and to do these things. He says we are deceiving ourselves. And so God calls his people to holiness. All right, in that verse 13, set your mind fully on the hope, the grace that is to be brought to us when Christ comes back. And then he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so be all holy in all of your conduct. Right, do not conform any longer to the passions that governed us, he says, in your ignorance. And what ignorance is he talking about? These passions that governed us in our, in our ignorance. Well, he's saying this, when you didn't know God. We are governed by certain passions, certain ways of thinking that are not biblical, that are not flowing from his word and his way. When we didn't know God, when we were blind to who God was, when we were blind to the beauty uh, that we just heard the choir singing about, the beauty of his holiness, the beauty of, of who he is and how right it is that he is like he is and how right it would be if the world would bear out its purpose and be like him. But now we see the one who has called us out of darkness and into light. And the Bible tells us that this one who has called us, where we have come to know him, the Bible helps us to know him as holy, 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 the Lord God who is almighty. And when you know him like that, and you know who he is and what he has done, it changes everything. And the God who is holy, 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 when we see him and when we know him as he is, it should bring us to our knees. Because it is this one who says to his children, be holy because I, your father, am holy. And that's the most beautiful thing about this passage. Not only do all the indicatives of his grace and all of what he has done for us come first, But then as he moves to the commands, how does he address us? How does he address you? How does the command come in 14? As obedient children. Right? The call to holiness, to this life that is pleasing to him, comes to you and I as his children. And so he wants us to, as we hear this call and think about this life, and and to to live this kind of life, it's not easy. It is countercultural. It is not the way the world thinks. It is not the way the world lives. They're, stressed. They're going this way. It's like a river flowing that way. And this means swimming upstream. 
by his grace and the power of, of, of his presence, that, that, he, that he is with us, he never leaves us and forsakes us, and we, as we abide in his word and in a fellowship and are encouraged, we swim. It's swimming upstream, though. We live in a world that suppresses the truth and has exchanged the glory that he calls us to for lies. And so he says we take these indicative truths of his love and what he has done for us and he has called us to himself and brought us to faith in Christ and he has caused us to be born again as his own children, being heirs and co-heirs with Christ, giving us an, an inheritance, calling us son, calling us daughter, adopting us into his family. And then having adopted us into his family by Christ and by faith, he says, my son, my daughter, be holy because your father is like that. Because your father loves that. It is his nature. It is who he is. Obey your father. Be like your father. Have a heart to please your father. You know, I raised two children. It's an adventure. Um, my desire is you raise them from, you know, very small, and they don't really do much, but as soon as they can speak a word, and, they, and it's no, and, you know, and they begin to have a will and a way, you know, of, of their own, and you begin to do this thing as you raise children. My desire was to raise children who would obey me, not because I'm power hungry, not because I'm on a power trip, but because I want them to grow up and to the young men and women who are mature and right and who know their Lord and who know what it means to live a life that is pleasing to him. And so my goal was to raise children who would obey me because they needed direction. And the scripture does this. They needed direction. And my desire was love for them. I wanted them to obey because I loved them and I was concerned for them. I also wanted them to obey because of their love and trust for me. Because I loved them well enough that they knew they were loved and secure and cared for in such a way that they loved me back and that they wanted to obey at some level. Now, you know, the older your children get, and that's a process. If you raise children at all, they're, they're, they're a work in progress. Their body, their brain is a work in progress. But to raise them to the point, you know, the older they got, the more I wanted them to know. You know, in high school, we would clash, and, you know, they wanted to do this, and I'm saying no, and, I, you know, and I would have this conversation. I would literally say, look, I love you more than life itself. I would, I would die for you, you know, in their sense. I mean, I love you in a way that you don't even understand until you start having your own kids. But here's the thing. God has given me a job. My job is to raise you the best I know how, <clears throat> according to his word, and I'm doing that. You may not agree with it. You may not understand it. You may disagree with it. But I want you to trust my heart. That what I do, I do because I love you. And when I say no, I want you to hear it in that context. I tried to say yes as often as I could so that my no would mean something. You know, for those who see Christianity as a set of rules, for those who simply see God as a demanding tyrant, throwing around arbitrary things, you know, to steal our fun and be mean to us, and, you know, all I can say is you do not know God. It is not the God of the Bible. You do not know or understand Christianity at all. 
In fact, you do not even understand why we exist. God's gracious purpose is to remake us as his children according to his original design. It's kind of what I try to do with my children, to remake them according to God's design. But you and I know, I mean, the Bible is clear from the first, what, page? He created us in his image. You know, male and female, he created us in his image. And the Bible is very clear. We're just talking about it. He's a holy God. The image of God is holiness. He made us for this. He made us to live and to be a certain way with him, before him, like him, as his people, as his children. And it's also clear from the scripture and from the world we were just talking about that we've fallen away from God's original design. Whether it's the world out there or the suffering that we experience or even what goes on in my own heart, in my own mind, my own sin, which I deal with daily at the foot of his cross. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. We have, we have fallen away. We have, something is broken. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not his design. And so he sends Jesus into the world as a savior to save us from ourselves in this fallenness, to restore to us to relationship with him, to restore us to his image that has been broken in us. Right? So there in your bulletin under the third point, we read in Colossians 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You and I were created in his image. That image was marred and broken by sin. And Jesus comes into the world. And we're told he comes to us as the image of the invisible God. He is man as we were meant to be. As we were designed to be. He was the perfect human being. He came to do for us what we failed to do every day. Came to renew us in God's image. And so Ephesians 4.24, next in your bulletin, he says, therefore, it is this work that God is doing, that Jesus is doing, is put on the new self. He's caused us to be born again into a new existence. Put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. The business of the people of God. Put off the old self, right? Well, how does Peter put it? He puts it that, that we are not to be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance when you didn't know God. And Paul says, put off the old self. And put on the new self, which is created to be like God, recreated to be like God, to fulfill his purpose to righteousness and holiness. Be holy, because I am holy. To be what we were created to be. To be in the Father's image. To live lives that are pleasing to Him. Because they're right. And because they're like Him. And so holiness is, has much to do with moral purity. God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And there is a moral purity that He speaks to. If you look down to chapter 2 in the first verse, which is where Peter is going here. And so he says, so therefore, following up, put away... All the stuff of your ignorance, don't conform. All malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, all slander. Put these things away. They are not like him. God is truth and love and light and health and peace and grace. And so there are lists running throughout the New Testament. Paul gives us a bunch of these lists. Sexual immorality, hatred, gossip, complaining, strife, anger, drunkenness, selfishness. You're saying in Sunday school, these are not random lists. God is saying, here's what I'm like. And if you're going to be like me, here's what's got to go. 
right? These things are not like me. They offend me. They're contrary to my nature, who I am and what I love. And so he calls his people to be like himself. So let me just give you a couple of things then to think as we come out of this. Um, the two commands, which one of them is to gird up the loins of your mind. Right? Pull yourself together, man. Right? That's what I, this morning, if, I, if, you, if you hear Peter as he turns to the church, as he talked about the indicatives of his grace, and he turns to the church and he says, all right, pull yourself together, man. You know, gird up the loins of your mind. Get, get sober-minded and serious about who God is and what it means to know him, love him, and walk with him to be a follower of Jesus, to take time to take God seriously, to think about what it means to be a follower of Christ. Because we have cared too much about the things of this world and we've cared too little about our spiritual growth and what it means to hear him speak and to not deceive ourselves by being hearers only, not doers. And so it is time to orient our lives for the day that we'll stand before him. And think seriously about what that means. And so this morning, I would just encourage you to to think through in some regards where where God is speaking to you. And you know the lists and you know what it is to live in a way that pleases him. And so Jesus says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master. And I would say, this is how he wants us to live. But second, he says very clearly to be holy in all of your conduct. In all of your conduct. In other words, he says, this is not a pastime. It's not something you do for an hour on Sunday morning. It's not something that you do once or twice a week as a project. You know, I'm going to be nice to someone because I'm supposed to be nice to someone. You know, he says, be holy in all of your conduct. In other words, to be holy means to be set apart for him as his people. You know, a people created in it, being recreated in his image. And so it reorients our whole lives. We're supposed to be quite different. And so everywhere, all the time, at home and at work, where you live, where you work, where you play, you know, it has everything to do with the way you treat your spouse. See, there's a way to treat your spouse that is like God in true righteousness and holiness. And there's a way to treat your spouse that is not. Right? There's a way to treat your children. There's a way to treat the lady at the checkout line at the store. There's a way to treat your waitress or your schoolmates or the other people in the youth group. There's a way that is like God in true righteousness and holiness, the way that he calls us to treat people. It has to do with so many of our decisions, you know, to walk this way. It has to do with all the choices that we make, where we spend our time and our money, the two most valuable commodities on the face of the earth, our time and our money. And what we do with them Is it about holiness or selfishness? What decisions do you need to make this morning? If your mind and your heart are going to be ready for action. Do you need to be in Sunday school? Do you need to be in a small group? You know, do you need to open just off your Bible and get back into a daily time of Hearing from God to speak into our lives is it, you know, there's a thousand different ways. There's your attitudes that you need to confront, attitudes toward people around you and toward the church, toward your spouse, toward your children, toward the world. 
things in your marriage that you need to bow the knee and, and ask God to help you to do it in righteousness and true holiness in a way that honors and reflects who he is in the way that we do it. Let me close with this. I just want to give you as you go from here, and I'm just thinking through, you know, for all of us, I mean, I thought about making more lists and, you know, trying to, you know, <laughs> it's, more, it's more sitting down and saying, God, tell me, and I want to be there. I want to be that man. I want to be that woman. I want to go that way. Help me make some choices that will change these things. But let me leave you with the Lord's Prayer and just to say, you know, this as you pray it and encourage you to pray it this week and to think about it this week is really a prayer bringing this, this whole passage into our lives. The Lord's Prayer is a prayer for holiness. I don't know if you've ever seen it that way or thought about it. It's a prayer about being God's people, right? It starts out with our Father who is in heaven and so addresses us as children like Peter does. It is his children that we come to him, not as slaves under a tyrant, but as his children. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. That word hallowed is, is simply the same word, holy. I don't know why sometimes we translate it one way, one place, another way, but it's simply the word holy. Holy is your name because you are holy. Hallowed be thy name, because you are holy, thy kingdom come, and thy will be done. Your kingdom come in my life, so that you are king and you are Lord. It's not my little kingdom doing what I want to do, but I live before you. Your kingdom come, start with my life, and then in, in the sphere of my life, your will be done. It's to live like you want me to live, to live as a follower of Christ. Your will be done and start with me that I would say no to what I want to do and start doing what you want me to do. Give us this daily, day our daily bread. Provide our needs. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us where we have failed to have your kingdom come and your will be done in our lives. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Help us to abandon the former passions and to be holy because you are holy. Forgive us where we fail and empower us to get serious. Because yours is the kingdom and yours is the power and yours is the glory and it's all about you and who you are and not about me. But it's a prayer that he would remake us in the image of Christ in his own image. My friends, pull yourselves together and get serious and as obedient children, be holy because your Father is holy. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning to sit at your feet and to hear from you. This is your word and not mine. Would you speak it into our souls such a way, such a way that we would not be hearers only, but that we would be doers, that you would help us to gird up the loins of our minds and to be sober-minded and to set our hope in the right place so that as your children, knowing who we are, we would seek to be you are making us to be by the power of your spirit for the glory of your name and for the good of your people we pray in Jesus name amen